Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. Our guest today is Daniel Galati. Daniel has spent the last six years at Comcast Ventures, a financially focused venture capital firm with a 20-year history investing in consumer, enterprise, and frontier technology companies. He joined as an entrepreneur in residence and worked his way up the ranks to principal, partner, and managing director at the firm. His C-stage portfolio includes D2C company Away, The Athletic, and digital health company K-Health. He recently became founding partner of Forecast, an early-stage consumer fund. Prior to becoming a VC, Daniel founded Fashion Stake, a marketplace for independent fashion, acquired by Fab.com. He also started his career as a strategy consultant at BCG. Daniel has this unique ability to go into such incredible detail when answering questions, and we were supposed to only speak for an hour, but that quickly turned into a couple hours. This one is certainly one of my favorites in regards to B2C investing. So without further ado, here's Daniel. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm really great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Tell me a little bit about your story into startups. Sure. So I, I kind of boil it down to two seminal moments uh, in, in my career. So the first was casting back to 2006, uh, back when I was uh, a wee little undergrad uh, in my hometown of Sydney, Australia, and where I really whet my appetite on, uh, in, you know, in, in the whole startup scene. And so what that looked like was starting a very small uh, t-shirt company with a fellow student um, who's still a really good friend. Um, you know, we were basically a group of us were sitting around uh, in a bar as you do when you're that age. And we were just sort of talking about different business ideas and, and talking about different things we could start. And um, we got to chatting with the table beside us um, at the bar. There was a guy sitting at the table, this guy by the name of Ryan Fitzgerald. And uh, we just started batting around different ideas and kind of got to know each other. And anyway, it turns out this guy, Ryan, had slated himself uh, as a housemate in a reality TV show called Big Brother. And he was actually scheduled, turns out he was actually scheduled to be a housemate in the, I think it was season four of, of the show. And if you think back to 2006, I mean, this show was, I mean, it was Shark Tank on steroids. I mean, it was the most popular show. Everyone watched it. And we started kind of thinking about, um, and, and this is like four or five beers in, you know, thinking about what could we do to leverage that, right? Um, he was this guy who had this kind of secret weapon and would be getting uh, primetime exposure, you know, over the next few months. And we kind of, uh, we kind of figured, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we developed this brand and it ended up being a T-shirt brand, uh, but we were thinking about it as a surfwear brand at the time where we could develop our own proprietary brand and then have this guy wear it in the house and basically get free marketing for, you know, the time that he was in the house. So 
you know, fast forward, that kind of ended up being my first little foray into entrepreneurship, you know, where we developed, I think the first batch was like a thousand t-shirts and the brand was called MLS, Massive Loser Squad. And it was, um, it was sort of this very distinct t-shirt that he wore in the house every night and it ended up doing really, really well. So, you know, the show would come on at 7 p.m. Ryan would be kind of featured in the house. We'd get all these orders, you know, from 7 p.m. through to midnight every night he was on. And, you know, that, that was a really thrilling experience for me um, and my, and my co-founder in the venture because it really showed that you can start something out of nothing, right? You can start, you can be a group of people with an idea and a bit of creativity and some unfair distribution and, you know, end up touching a lot of people's lives. And so um, that was sort of my first real uh, path into entrepreneurship and starting companies and startups. Um, and then sort of fast forward to the, to the second kind of seminal moment, which was really a business school. So I, I ended up sort of graduating from my undergrad degree in Sydney. And then uh, my first job was actually at BCG, the consulting firm. And then I ended up going to, moving to the States 11 years ago to go to business school at, at Harvard. And that's where I met my, uh, my second co-founder. So a woman by the name of Vivian Wang, who I'm still really, really close with today. And Vivian and I met at a retail and luxury goods uh, mixer. I think in the first week of business school. And I think it was clear to both of us pretty much, you know, the moment that we met that, hey, like, you know, we really respected each other. She had some really interesting experiences in fashion that I thought were, were interesting and sort of reminded me back to my t-shirt days. Um, and so we just started jamming on ideas and we came up with this uh, idea that you could aggregate uh, basically the long tail of fashion. So in the same way that kind of Etsy was doing for uh, various other kind of DIY craft um, verticals, you could do for uh, more high-end kind of contemporary fashion. And it hadn't really been done yet. So the idea was you have all these designers in, you know, all around the world who are basically producing these uh, these garments um, that are really struggling with distribution. So this was back at a time where you know, the big department stores, Macy's, Neiman, um, et cetera, were dominating distribution. So, and so it was really hard for these designers to kind of break through and, and you know, get these, these big doors to sell, sell their products. And so we thought, wouldn't it be cool to build a marketplace where you could just list your inventory online and have, you know, anyone, anyone buy it? And we'd sort of uh, give them the tools to manage their businesses and their inventory and so that was really my, my second business. And, and the difference between the two was for this one, we went down the venture capital route. And so it was a really kind of eye-opening learning for me. I mean, sort of coming to the US and seeing this whole industry where you could basically, uh, you know, raise money and raise quite a bit of money um, off of, you know, sort of a, a, an interesting idea and an interesting team. And that was really quite a novel thing for me. I mean, certainly back home in Australia, we didn't at the time have, have anything that really looked like that. And so it was kind of this really intriguing, um, really intriguing learning journey for me where, you know, being on the other side of the table, sure, but really being curious about, hey, there's this other 
there's this whole big um, sort of institution willing to give Vivian and I, you know, our first 500,000 to start this business off of, off of pretty much a PowerPoint deck. Um, and it, it just sort of sparked me, uh, sparked my mind into, wow, that, that's a pretty cool job. You know, if I wasn't a founder, I'd, I'd totally be into that job. And so I sort of filed that in the back of my mind and, you know, kept running the business and, and grew the business. And we ended up getting acquired by a company called Fab. Um, which at the time was quite a large e-commerce company. It was a, you know, it raised a couple hundred million dollars. It was trying to be a high-end Amazon, and you know, the whole team, the whole fashion stake team, went over and uh, became a part of Fab and and learned a lot, sort of as a as an operating executive at Fab. Um, and then when you know when Vivian and I left Fab, I started thinking about okay, what what is the next thing for me? And sort of my mind casted back to, you know, raising that original seed round for, for, my, for my business, for fashion sake, and sort of waded into VC that way. So um, during the course of running my company, had gotten to know a lot of the VCs in New York. Um, and back then, New York was quite a small ecosystem. I mean, there, were, there was RRE, there was Firstmark, Comcast Ventures was there, sort of building its presence, Spain Capital Ventures. Um, obviously, uh, Union Square Ventures, but there weren't, you know, hundreds of, of firms and certainly there wasn't this thriving seed ecosystem that there is there today. And so it was a very small kind of ecosystem. And I, uh, I got introduced to the Comcast Ventures uh, team as they were looking to build their, their presence in New York and, and uh, the rest is history, I guess. Particularly liked how when you were talking about your two companies, a uh, emphasis on distribution and your learning about distribution. So transitioning over to the VC part of your career, why did you focus on consumer as opposed to enterprise investing? Yeah, so just to and just to put a, a cap on the on the last conversation. So, you know, I think every VC has at some point fantasized being an, about being a founder. And I think vice versa, every founder has at some point thought about being a VC. I think, I think it was Ben Franklin who originally said, uh, either write things worth reading or do things worth writing, right? And I think the, the startup version of that is either start a company that changes the world or invest in companies that change the world. And, you know, for me, I kind of had this uh, moment of realization that, uh, I'm not technical, so I'm not an engineer by by trade, and so and, and I didn't I didn't really enjoy the kind of minutia of operating a company, and so I, I kind of made the bet that I'd be a better coach than a player, and that my bet was not actually starting the thing that changes the world, but to identify and support and and invest in the companies that change the world. So that that was. That was a moment of self-reflection that sort of pivoted my thinking to to becoming a VC full time, and then in terms of being an early stage consumer investor, um, it's interesting. So I, I was I was listening to a talk by uh, Mike Moritz from Sequoia, um, a talk that he was giving to a class at Stanford, you know, a few years ago, and you know, a question he was asked was. Um, I'll get this wrong, but it was some version of, you know, you have, you know, been a storied venture capitalist, you invested in Apple all the way down, you know, the companies at Sequoia have backed are, I think it's a third of the market cap of the entire NASDAQ, you know, why did you 
invest in this little company called Instacart? And, you know, why do you spend your valuable time serving on the board of the company? And his answer was, was really interesting, which was, it's really real, because it's really, really fun to prove people wrong. And, you know, he was this guy who, you know, the guy's a multi-billionaire, has achieved everything that you could want to achieve in, in venture capital and beyond, um, is literally a, a British knight, right? And here he is, you know, spending time with the CEO of this little company called Instacart and, and helping that company grow to be a really, really big company. And, you know, he kind of went, walked through, you know, this idea that Sequoia had invested in Webvan, you know, back in the dot-com boom, the business didn't work. And, you know, everyone was telling them not to invest in Instacart. This was just Webvan 2.0. And, um, and, you know, he, he really thought differently. You know, he thought that there was a very big difference in the business model where Ben was heavily relying on, on its fixed asset base, whereas Instacart is more of a networked model. And so, you know, had a thesis that the business would really work. But ultimately, um, he described that thrill of, you know, fundamentally proving people wrong. And I think it, it really resonated with me because I think so much of what we do at the early stage is sort of at the fringes. Um, it's investing companies and people that seem unimportant, that seem trivial, that seem like they're going in the complete wrong direction, right? And, you know, it's only until maybe years later that you get the validation that, um, you know, when the world has sort of caught up to, to what this founder and this team has built, that you actually get that satisfaction of, you know, this is actually going to be a really big company and going to be a world changing company. And I think there's just so much joy and so much magic in, in that moment when something goes from contrarian and on the edge and on the fringes and a secret between the investor group and the founders to, hey, this is something that the world needs and the world is gonna embrace. Um, so, so I think as an early stage investor, I think you have to enjoy proving the world wrong and proving people wrong. And, and, and I certainly, um, I certainly resonated with what Mike Moritz said about that. Um, and then on the consumer side, you know, for me, consumer is really powerful because you get to invest in verbs, right? Uber's a verb, Google's a verb, Xerox is a verb, you know, Zoom, Zoom is now a verb. And, and on the consumer investing side, you, you know, you get to invest in things that just can reshape people's lives in a very, very small and quick time horizon. So, um, you know, when you think about, okay, what, what really matters and when you think about what will you think back to sort of 20, 30, 40 years from now, I think the chance to play a very small role in um, you know, a company that changes people's lives as dramatically as Google and Uber and, and Xerox have, I think would be a really thrilling thing. So that's why I decided to do it. Yeah, I, wow. I, I especially loved your story about Mike Moritz and how it really conveys how amazing and addictive it is to help founders grow their companies and really being part of innovation. How do you think about opportunistic investors versus thematic and kind of where you fall on the scale? Yeah, sure. And, and I think on this question, there are, different, there are different paths to success, right? So there are some VCs 
that both within you know Comcast Ventures and outside that have great success doing a top-down analysis of sectors and investing in the, the leading companies in those sectors and really developing a thesis around those sectors. And that can be a really great way to win, right? I think, I think at the early stage, uh, it is important to be opportunistic. And, and, and the reason I say that is, you know, ultimately our job is to find the white whale, right? We're out there trying to find these outlier companies that, that can change the world. We're not, we're not investing in some, you know, basket of companies or an index of companies. We're, we're really trying to pick the one company that matters, that really stands out, right? And so, you know, I think if that is your lens, that you are just out there trying to find the best company uh, that gets started in any given year, it, it, it follows that it is really difficult to make a prediction about where that company will get started, what sector it will get started in. Um, you know, I've got no idea where the next great company is going to start, right? And and I don't want to I don't want to limit myself to whatever my prediction may be. I think the the heuristic that I like to use is um, the entrepreneur is leading me. You know, is the horse leading me to the water? Right. And, and I think it's a much better bet to bet on a founder's belief than for a VC to sit in a dark room trying to predict where the next big thing is going to come from. So that's that's my personal style is really that the founders are on the are on the are, are living in the future and they're pulling us into the future with them and uh, getting us to believe in their version of the future. And really, that's that's what our job is. It's to buy into their vision of the future and to to invest in them so so i think you know for me being being opportunistic is the way to go and i think on the flip side you know being too thematic um you know not only do you run into this sort of prediction problem where you you bet that you're the smartest person in the room and that you can uh before the fact you know predict where the best companies are going to come from you also it also leads to a whole bunch of other sort of maybe non-obvious um, issues. One is just everything looks like a nail, right? So if I if I say at the beginning of you know a fund or a year that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on remote work, you know I think what I've seen in the past is that really you know you are now really on the hook to do a deal in that you know in that space because you've blogged about it and talked about it and you have, uh, you've said you're going to make investments in the space, right? And so I think what, what I've observed in the past is you get this really kind of this negative externality of, okay, now that I said I'm going to do a deal in direct-to-consumer, like I have to do one. And, you know, you, you almost have your blinders on where, okay, my next deal has to kind of check this box. And, and you know, I think the more blinders you have on, particularly at the early stage, I think, the more, the higher the chance that you miss the outlier and you miss the kind of company that comes in from left field. And I think the companies that come from in from left field are really the ones that we that we want to back, right? It's the ones that are not sort of neatly inserted into an existing category. They're the ones that are not obvious. And so I think I think being an opportunist liberates you from 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 those buckets and you know i think the the benefits of being thematic are clearly that you come into conversations with a prepared mind right so 
you know, I think in a, in a competitive world, in a world where capital is a commodity, I think entrepreneurs really notice whether you are a domain expert or not as an, as an investor. And they're really visualizing you as a board member thinking about, you know, is this person going to be helpful? Are they going to be smart and educated about my category? And I think that is important. So I think definitely understanding the space that you're investing in and being able to be helpful to an entrepreneur over time is critical. Um, and I think the onus is on the VC really to, to, to learn a space quickly and to get up to speed and, and to be helpful. So I think, you know, I would characterize my personal style as um, sort of opportunistic and, um, you know, and, and willing to get up to speed on any given category to the, to the point where I can be helpful to, to an entrepreneur. But, um, you know, but I think there are different ways to skin the cat. Very, uh, like more, uh, definitely on the opportunistic bucket, uh, because, uh, frankly, he said, if you look at the different categories, you know, there's not enough winners. If you decide to specialize in, you know, even, you know, a few different categories, there's not enough winners to make it viable, uh, to be thematic. I think, uh, I, yeah, I think another maybe building on Charles's point is if you're too now, if you're too thematic, you miss out on the benefits of diversification. So that might be fine. That might be by design, right? You may have a very, very strong point of view on, I don't know, AI and want to build a fund around that. And I think you can have success doing things like that. Um, but it does mean that you won't get the chance to invest outside of that. And, and the question I always ask myself is, okay, if I started a fund that was only going to invest in AI companies, what if I met the next, I don't know, Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, Eric Yuan, who was starting a company outside of AI? Would I pass on that entrepreneur, right? And, and you know, I, I think the answer that everyone would say is, well, no, we would want to back that person. And so, um, and, and so I think like, sort of the diversification point is really, I mean, today's world is a good example where a lot of companies are down and but some companies are up pretty big, right? So um, we're investors in a company called Blue Land, which is a eco cleaning company, which has experienced tremendous growth through this COVID environment. And I think if you are too narrow in your focus, you miss out on the ability to diversify your portfolio across different categories across different sectors uh across potentially even different types of entrepreneurs and you know ultimately that could uh have a negative impact on returns yeah i i completely agree with you so you're the first quote-unquote corporate vc i've had on this show and i'd love to learn like how you think about cor the corporate vc ecosystem and where Comcast Ventures maybe falls on the financial versus strategic scale? We get asked this question a lot. Are you a corporate? Are you strategic? Are you a financial? And it dawned on me that the those traditional kind of buckets aren't particularly helpful to, to entrepreneurs. Instead, how we how we think about ourselves is you know, our customers are, are our entrepreneurs. We exist to serve our entrepreneurs. And we are, you know, any firm is building a product that when put together is meant to serve those customers, our entrepreneurs, right? And so we think really, really hard about what is that product? And I think every firm needs to think hard about what is the product that you're ultimately 
selling to, to your customers. And, and so when we think about it through that lens, we're thinking about what is the kind of unique, uh, what are the unique things that we can bring to market that will solve an entrepreneur's pain points and help them achieve their potential? And, and, and that's really the framing that, that, that we have. And, and, and I think the way that we think about it is how do we be almost an N of one VC? How do we build this unique firm that, that can do that? And our answer to that is we are going to combine the best of financial investing, which is a multi-stage approach where we can be your capital partner from pre-seed through to IPO and invest at every single stage and be a supportive capital partner at every single stage. We're going to combine that financial support with what we think is a really interesting and powerful platform in the assets of Comcast NBCU. And where that comes to bear for consumer companies is really around customer acquisition. So if you ask any you know, consumer CEO, uh, I would bet that you know, either the top or one of the top three things that they're thinking about is you know, how do I achieve healthy, sustained growth in my company? And we have basically oriented our firm's uh, support assets focus around answering that question, which is we're going to provide you with uh, things like at-cost TV inventory, things like show integrations, things that can really uh, broaden and scale your customer acquisition efforts and give you, and back to your point about unfair advantage, give you in many ways an unfair advantage on acquiring con you know, consumers and customers for your startup. And you know, when we kind of looked at the landscape of VCs, you know, there are a lot of VCs out there that have portfolio services. Um, we think a lot of those portfolio services are somewhat commoditized and homogenous. And so our challenge to ourselves was really how do we bring uniqueness to to the market and to entrepreneurs and our answer was was this idea around helping them with customer acquisition so we have a great team of folks um in a in a sub division of comcast ventures called forecast labs whose whose only job it is is to help our companies supercharge customer acquisition by leveraging comcast and nbcu's unique assets and so and so really that sort of back to this idea of an N of one VC, you know, that's really our approach, which is the financial support throughout the company's life combined with just a very tangible impact uh, or what we aspire to have is a tangible impact on, on the companies that we back on the consumer side. So, so, so that's kind of how we think about Comcast Ventures and what we do for consumer companies. You know, I think the challenge for us it is to, and the ongoing challenge for us is to communicate that value, right? Is to have people think of us as truly a differentiated proposition and to not just put us in the bucket of, okay, you're only investing in digital media companies or ad tech companies, right? And, and, and so for us, the way that we've thought about that challenge is there are kind of two ways to do it, right? One is you can shout from the rooftops. And the other is you can go company by company and month by month and day by day and you know hour by hour and put as much work and, and effort as you can into helping your companies and hope that hope that the work gets out. And I think 
we've opted to do more of the second, which is, you know, our bet is that if we can, you know, if we can really impact the LTV of our companies, if we can really reduce the customer acquisition cost of our companies, and if we can do it at scale, that our customers are going to be our best advocates. Um, and so, so how that differs maybe a little bit from, from the sort of traditional buckets is obviously it's a, it, it is a VC plus model. Um, you know, I think that the strategic only VCs, I think, you know, in many ways have their drawbacks. Um, and we've been, we've designed our firm to not have some of those drawbacks around uh, things like rofers on acquisitions and, and um, you know, misaligned incentives. Uh, but I think also the, the pure financial firms, you know, need to prove their relevancy to these founders, right? And need to prove that they are adding value. And so, um, you know, everyone's trying to find a way to differentiate and there are great firms in each bucket. And, you know, we've come up with what we think is, a, is an answer to entrepreneurs' problems. Yeah, thanks for laying that out. Yeah, and I want to be, and I want to just be clear to entrepreneurs that are listening, which is we are uh, operating as an independent fund, right? So we're we're operating as an independent decision-making body, you know, as a partnership that are making decisions as a partnership. There's no business unit or corporate approval that is, you know, required for our investing. Uh, we have pretty solid Chinese walls between, you know, our fund and 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 Comcast NBCU. So, you know, entrepreneurs should feel confident that when they're dealing with Comcast Ventures, they're dealing with Comcast Ventures and any business unit relationship or, or otherwise is, is really led by, uh, you know, the entrepreneur's permissiveness. Um, and so I think that's just important to clarify. I agree, that is uh, very important. So I know that you were talking before a bit about, um, how you're interested in both e-commerce execution type businesses and network type businesses. And wondering if you could explain, explain the distinction between the two and how you're thinking about these two different models. Sure. So the distinction I make between, let's call it an e-commerce company and a marketplace company, is that e-commerce companies are easy to start and hard to scale. And marketplace companies are hard to start, but easier to scale. And, and that's important because it ties into the type of questions you ask before you invest and the type of help you might give an entrepreneur post-investment. And so, so, so let me make that real. Um, so starting with the e-commerce companies, you know, I actually think e-commerce companies get a really bad rap with investors. Um, I think most investors probably look at e-commerce companies as uh, capital intensive, low margin, low multiple businesses. And I think there is some truth to that. Um, but I think at the same time, there are really, really big e-commerce companies that, uh, that exist today that have been venture-backed companies. Um, you know, a really good example of that is a company called Chewy, which is a $17 billion company today that started, I think, back in 2011 that sells, for the most part, third-party uh, pet food products, right? And, you know, that's a company that I think most investors passed on. Uh, there are a couple of VCs in the company. But I think under anyone, whether you're a software investor, a consumer investor, an infrastructure investor, a biotech investor, you know, going from zero to 17 billion in less than a decade is, is, is pretty darn impressive. And so you ask yourself, okay, how do you, 
you know, if there are examples that we can see that, you know, besides Amazon, that um, on the e-commerce side that, that do become really big, okay, what, how do you get there, right? And, and I think how you get there is, is really um, sort of operational excellence and scale. And, and, and so on the e-commerce side, I think where a lot of companies do fail is that you do get into this revolving door of paid marketing and low margins and undifferentiated product. Um, but you also get into this pit of um, operational mediocrity. So like uh, we're investors in a company called Away, which is a direct to consumer travel company. And, you know, everyone uh, who talks about Away talks about, you know, I see their products on Instagram and they get great influencers and they do great marketing, et cetera. You know, when I think about Away, I, I actually think that their success is as much about what they've done on the back end as, as the front end. So if you look at their, you know, supply chain organization, how they um, orchestrate technology to, you know, improve logistics, for example, and sourcing. If you look at the investment that they put into customer service and and all the things they do around customer experience, um, you know, if you look at the merchandising side of their of their business, sort of everything, it, it is truly a system, and everything comes together to really make the brand sing on the front end. And I think I think that that is really the unlock for for these e-commerce companies is you actually have to be really good at both the front end and the back end over a sustained period of time such that you can get to the scale that you need to become a really valuable company um so i think that's that's how i think about e-commerce it's less about you know can these companies get to a million or two million or three million of revenue because for the most part the demand curve is pretty known and these markets exist already and so as an investor you're not really worried about getting out of the gate you're more worried about can this company you know, achieve, you know, a scale that looks like hundreds of millions of dollars or even a billion dollars in revenue and how do they get there? Um, so, so that's on the e-commerce side. And then, you know, on the marketplace side, you kind of flip it. So you say these businesses tend to be really difficult to, to get going because you do have this cold start problem and you've got to kind of get enough kinetic energy in the flywheel to, to get to marketplace liquidity, to get to that threshold liquidity, to get that network effect. And so, but then once you have that network effect, things, things, can, things can escalate in your favor pretty quickly, right? And so conversely, as an investor, a lot of your thinking around marketplace businesses are really, okay, how do you get to threshold liquidity? And so, um, you know, just uh, a, a company that I admire that I think we mentioned earlier is um, is Etsy, which is I think as of today an eight-ish billion-dollar company. Um, it's a marketplace selling you know DIY goods, and and what was really interesting about that business when it started, you know, it started way back I think it's '05 or '06, was you know two things. One was you know you were putting all this inventory online that didn't have a home on eBay. So you had all this sort of new supply, you unlocked this new seller community that, you know, didn't otherwise exist, um, at least on the internet. And so it was sort of this idea of proprietary supply and giving that supply a home. But you also had this second really powerful, um, almost distribution part to the story, which was their community forum. So I don't know whether you've ever been on Etsy, but like even back in the, in the early days, um, 
their, their forums, uh, which were basically like a bunch of people uh, trading craft ideas and talking about how to, you know, what the latest, you know, crochet, you know, materials were that you would get and how to source and how to build a business on, on you know, on the internet. You know, those forums were actually a really, really powerful customer acquisition, both demand and supply side acquisition tool for, for Etsy. And, and, you know, those forums basically fed on themselves, right? They weren't, they weren't built through marketing dollars. They were built through supplier passion and, and seller passion. And, and those community forums were really powerful from an SEO perspective and really helped them get to, you know, that threshold level of awareness and liquidity. And so, you know, I, I just think that's a really interesting example of not only sort of changing the game on supply, um, but also having a really, in the, in the community forums, having a really interesting way to keep people engaged when they, even when they weren't selling at that particular moment. And, and to really build the business that way. And of course, like once you get to, you know, once you get to a certain level of critical mass, um, you really do enjoy that network effect. And then there have been many people that have tried to sort of take share from Etsy and, and you know, from, from, from what I can see, the company is doing pretty well. That's really well said how you think about the two. And I really love that Etsy example. How do you think about portfolio construction within these two different types of models of businesses? So I definitely think these networked, you know, whether it's a marketplace or, or another kind of more of a social network, you know, those businesses tend to be, tend to be more binary because, you know, a lot of the businesses fail to ever get to any relevant critical mass. And so therefore a lot of them fail. And then the ones that do get to critical mass um, actually have a really good shot at sort of expanding, expanding from that point. So I think the marketplace businesses tend to be more binary. Um, and, and I think it is true that the CPG and, and sort of product businesses tend to be a little less binary. I, I would say, um, you know, in terms of outcome size, there are, there are different ways to get to a big outcome, right? Like one way is to be smaller in revenue and have a really high multiple uh, on exit. And the other is to be bigger in revenue and have a lower multiple on exit, right? And so, you know, while Chewy doesn't trade at 10x revenue like, you know, some software companies or, or marketplaces, it's still a really, really valuable company. And it's still a fundamentally really interesting company. So, so I don't, you know, I don't think we would go into any investment, whether it's, you know, no matter what category it's in, thinking that, um, hey, this is, this is going to be a, a, a 3x, you know, seed or series A investment that returns, you know, 3x. I think I think the bar for all our investments at the seed and Series A is this could be worth you know at least 10x if not if not more, and you know I think there are trade-offs between different business models, right? So while one model might be a little bit more capital intensive, um, you know it, it maybe doesn't have the cold start problem that that the marketplace model has. So so I think there are different considerations a whole web of considerations to to kind of work through um but i you know I, I think certainly for for me i don't think about hey this cpg company or, or product company is going to be you know less exciting overall than you know a marketplace company i think both can be big 
Right, right. Thanks for further explaining those differences in those two, two types of businesses and why you could get excited by either type. You said back in 2018 that CAC is the new rent. I see that being repeated often these days. What exactly do you mean by that? And how should startups think about paid marketing? You know, back in you know 2018, I was actually getting a lot of pitches from uh, these DNVBs. I think a lot of investors were. And you know the whole the whole pitch uh, that these DNVBs were making was that you could really own the consumer, quote unquote, in a way that a traditional brand couldn't, and uh, in doing so, you could uh, leverage the data and all these uh, all these interesting data points around the consumer and uh, build your company and your products around that sort of fast feedback loop. Um, you know, in a way that a, a brand that relied on wholesale and other retailers could. And, and so I sort of compared that pitch to, to what I saw in, in the financial statements of some of these companies. And, and actually, if you kind of look under the hood, a lot of these companies were spending, you know, a lot of money on marketing, uh, you know, to acquire customers. And we're also spending a lot of money, some were also spending a lot of money remarketing to those customers via Facebook and, and Instagram. And so, you know, when you have a company that whose pitch is we're going to own the customer and yet on the other hand is spending, you know, 50, 70, 90, 110% of their gross revenues on customer acquisition and remarketing via platforms like Facebook and Instagram, you, you, you can't help but ask the question who owns the customer. Is it, is it me owning the customer as the brand or is it face, am I renting the customer from Facebook and Instagram and, and actually those, those platforms are the, the owners at the end of the day? And, and so, you know, for me, the CAC is a new rent, you know, kind of summarized the, the thinking there, which is, you know, are some of these customers just basically paying a tax, a big tax, a very costly tax to, Facebook and Instagram to, to rent customers. And sort of that shaped my thinking around, you know, what, what makes a really, really good product company, you know, in terms of selling, uh, selling physical products and, and, you know, example after example, whether it be, uh, you know, Amazon right through to, you know, the Chewies of the world, right through to the Warby Parkers of the world more recently, you know, Stitch Fix, I'd probably include in the same bucket. You know, these are businesses, if you look under the hood, that are built on word of mouth and referrals, particularly in the, in the early stages of the business. And so, you know, if, if you see a company that, um, that grows really quickly, but where marketing and paid marketing is growing linearly with revenue, you know, that, that's a big red flag to me. And I think, you know, the most powerful, the most powerful go signal, the most powerful green light on, you know, an early stage company is, is, is really organic demand. And it's really around our customers loving your, you know, your shoes or your luggage or your, you know, X. And are they telling other customers about your shoes, luggage and X? And, you know, I think if you don't have that, you're really relegated to playing this paid acquisition game that, you know, for the most part is a, is a largely unprofitable game for the brand. It's an incredibly profitable game for the platforms. Um, and it's an incredibly big growth area for these platforms, but for an individual brand, you know, 
to, to, to get real leverage on those marketing dollars over time and to be really dependent on the platforms is, is, is very, very difficult. And so to this day, we're really focused on businesses that have really strong word of mouth, really strong referrals and can complement that foundation with really well executed paid marketing strategies. But, you know, I think if the foundation is, is, is really spending money for a dollar of revenue, that's a really tough game to play. Absolutely. I mean, especially now, of course, with uh, such efficiency and, and saturation. I wanted to also talk about, um, you know, how do you think about winning a category or becoming a leader in a category when you're looking at opportunities? I've really shifted my thinking on this. Um, you know, and, and I um, I think a, a really, a book that I keep going back to on this topic is a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. A lot of your listeners probably have read it. Um, it's a seminal uh, strategy book by a couple of INSEAD professors. And, and basically they, uh, they posit that there are two types of markets. There are red ocean markets and blue ocean markets. And red ocean markets are by far the most common, right? Which are markets whose boundaries are known, uh, who are dominated by incumbent players with significant built-in advantages and uh, whose growth rates are you know, uninteresting. Um, and that most of the companies that will get started are actually get started, whether by intention or not, in these red ocean markets, because these red ocean markets are known and you can actually measure demand. Um, and so and, and so that's one bucket. And then, you know, the authors kind of uh, posit that there's this other bucket, which is this idea of a blue ocean market, which is, um, markets whose boundaries are not defined, uh, you know, adjacent spaces that could feel fringy um, when compared to existing, you know, quote unquote, red ocean markets. And, and, and actually, it's the blue ocean markets that are the most interesting for new entrants, because new entrants can go and own that market. They can own, they, they can't enter a red ocean market and win against an incumbent because the incumbent has way too many, they have scale, they have capital, they have know-how. But when you're entering a blue ocean market, all bets are off, right? It's new to everyone. And so, you know, that really gets you thinking about the difference between, you know, quote unquote TAM, which a lot of invest, you know, which a lot of investors, including me, think about, um, and this idea of like overall market attractiveness. So I think if you're stuck on TAM, you're really talking about markets that are already defined, that already exist, right? That there's a high chance those markets could be red ocean markets. And if you kind of shift your thinking to, okay, not only what is this market worth today, but how attractive will this market be in five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, that really gets you thinking along the lines of kind of these, these more blue ocean categories, which may not be categories today. Um, and so, you know, I think about, I think the, um, the really interesting company of our time that sort of fits into that rubric is, is this company Carter, the cap table company. I've been fascinated. We're not investors, but I've been fascinated with this, with this company, which is, you know, the company, it's almost the definition of, of a blue ocean market, which is I'm going to start doing cap tables electronically. Right. And I'm going to spend years and years and years building this graph of, equity investors where the kind of focal point is we're putting their cap tables online 
And, you know, you could look at that market and you could say that's a really, you know, A, is that even a market? And if it is, how big is it? And I think the answer you would get to if you were doing a traditional TAM analysis was that it is a really small market. But I think, you know, if you sort of had this blue ocean lens of, all right, how attractive could this be over time? You'd start to think about, okay, by putting together this graph of investors and companies, using the cap table as a wedge to do that, you know, what else could I do? Well, actually, I could do, you know, 409A valuations for these companies. Actually, I could start to um, control and, and, and facilitate communication between different stakeholder groups of these companies, between the board, between investors and the board, between, you know, management and the board. Um, and, you know, obviously all the really interesting things they've announced around Carter X, which is the, the secondary marketplace that they're, they're working on. So, you know, I, I think just outside in, um, you know, looking at that company and seeing it evolve, it, it was really a story of kind of just wedging into this blue ocean and, and really owning that, that market of sort of electronic cap tables, building a graph around it, building a network around it, and then going off and, and, and doing the, the, the bigger things over time. And I think that's how I've increasingly thought about it, which is sort of you talk about being a category leader and, and winning a category is um, first is building a product that, um, that can redefine or recast the boundaries of a category is kind of the first step. And then, you know, backing on, you know, backing a founder and a management team to uh, leverage that starting position, that foothold into, you know, bigger and bigger opportunities over time. And so that's, that's really the thinking that I've really evolved to is, is it's less about a static kind of how big is this market? And it's more about um, more of a dynamic view of like, okay, if we, if we nail product market fit in this first instance, uh, you know, what opportunities does that unlock over time? And, and are those opportunities attractive? Wow. I think there's a, there, there's a lot to digest there. And I was wondering, first of all, love the example with Carta. Uh, I completely agree with you. For entrepreneurs, for folks that are starting B2C businesses, how should they be thinking about maybe presenting if it, if their product that they're developing is a true maybe blue ocean product, how can they be thinking about uh, when convincing investors or talking to investors, you know, the TAM or or just just the market size in general, because it just seems like a uh, pretty hard to to really point that out until you know a few years later you look back and you go, oh, of course. Yeah. So th this speaks to the heart of earning the right to wade into a blue ocean, right? Why do I get to build the electronic cap table company and and you don't? And and why should I put my capital behind? you who uh, is saying that this is a blue ocean, but, but, but it may or may not be. And, and I think there are kind of two, there are two things that I look for there. I think one is this idea of, that's been said many times before, I, I certainly did not make this up, but um, this idea of founders with an earned secret, right? So what, because blue ocean markets are by definition un counterintuitive, uh, potentially uninteresting to the mainstream, unconventional, uh, unconventionally uh, large, you know, it, it requires a founder that has some special insight into the potential, right? So, um, you know, so so I think like you're really looking for founders who at some point in their lives have developed some kind of conviction about why this is an opportunity 
And whether that be from their work experience or personal pain, I think that conviction can come from different places. But you're really looking for a founder that can credibly demonstrate that, you know, hey, here in my hand, I have this insight, this secret, and, and, and that gives me the right to go and attack this opportunity. So I think that's, that's one lens that I put on it. And the second is, um, you know, really looking at a founder and saying, you know, where have you taken a risk and, and been right? Like, where have you taken a non-consensus point of view on something or, 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 or risk on something and, and have that risk actually pay off? Um, and that could be anything from what, you know, school you decided to go to or not go to or to a business that you started that worked out to, you know, a decision you made, you know, 10 years ago while you were, while you were still at school. It can, be, it can be anything. It doesn't have to be in a business context, but, but I really look for, okay, where have you made a decision and, and a decision that was non, uh, maybe not popular or not the obvious decision and actually have that decision pay off. And I think if you put those two things together, a founder with, a secret about the world that they had earned through their experiences and blood, sweat and tears together with, you know, this history or at least some data points of making these non-consensus decisions and having those decisions pay off. I think when you put those two things together, you see a founder that can suddenly beat the odds, right? A founder that, you know, can identify these, these really non-linear type opportunities and, and, and have them work out. And so it, it's actually less about, you know, presenting uh, TAM proxies or, you know, hey, look at this other market, you know, that's really big, this, you know, believe me, this one can be really big. It's, it's less about pulling together Gartner reports on, on it and sort of mounting a case that way. And it's way more about sort of what the founder, him or herself have have learned and demonstrated over time. Let's say a, a founder comes in with a very, very unique insight, insight or, or, or has a secret. How does their domain expertise influence your decision-making process? I mean, I know you've invested with invested in seasoned entrepreneurs. I know you've also invested in first-time entrepreneurs, but just wanted to see what the relationship, if that has a relationship as well, on how you perceive the insight. I, I actually care way less about whether you've started a company before. And, and in fact, some of the most you know, powerful companies, at least in my portfolio, have been from the aways of the world where Steph and Jen were first-time founders, right? They'd worked at Warby Parker together and were starting this company. And, you know, they built a, a billion-dollar-plus company in four years, but they never started a company before that, right? Um, Alon from K-Health had started companies, but had certainly not operated in the healthcare world before starting, you know, K-Health, which is, you know, if not the top, one of the top uh, telemedicine apps today and, and virtual care apps today. So, you know, I, I think the the whether you've started a company before and whether you have domain expertise is a little bit less relevant than the sort of earn secret insight, um, you know, rubric that we talked about. But but I think um, but I think where you know domain expertise does come in handy is when you're in these um, highly complex. Uh, and, and, and typically highly regulated industries, right? So there are, you know, financial services is probably a good one where, you know, it isn't just a move fast, break things industry, right? It's a, you know, it's a, you know, you can't, as Mike Maples says, you know, you can't 
um, you can't be in financial services and sign a $7 million you know, contract with a bank and you know, lob up half a loaf, right? You've got to nail product market fit. You've got to nail your product. And so I think for those companies where you don't get 10 shots on goal and where you kind of move away from this iterative consumer internet, founders in a garage kind of model throwing ideas against the wall where you do have to nail your iterations. I think, I think you know, those industries are more likely to be served well by entrepreneurs that have a working knowledge of the different players, the industry structure, the regulation around those industries. But again, I don't think that's a hard and fast rule. Like, you know, I look at healthcare today and say that is a very, it's a very thorny industry, right? You have payers, providers, um, you know, you obviously the whole patient ecosystem, you have very limited data interoperability, you have different stakeholders with different incentives. Um, and, and, and so it is a, it is a, it's a obviously very highly regulated with that, you know, an industry that attracts a lot of government interest. And, you know, yet you have this, this outsider in many ways in Elon who was able to, was able to kind of navigate all of that. And so, you know, I think at the margin domain expertise helps with, with these highly regulated kind of complex industries, but I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. That makes a lot of sense in terms of how you think about regulated industries versus non the level of expertise. And I know we, I know we were talking before about, you know, going over your due diligence process and uh, what, what you pitched to me, which I think, which I think is a great way and, and, and pretty fun uh, to try another way is just to Take us through how you diligence and end up ended up investing in, in uh, three of your companies. So I'll I'll pick a smattering of different opportunities and, and companies. So maybe we'll start with K Health since we since we just talked about it. So K Health was really uh, an outbound uh, situation where you know Elon Block, the CEO who had been the CEO of Wix, uh, high profile company, it's a very successful company, and most recently the CEO of Broom the used car company um, had, you know, just left Vroom. So he just left Vroom. Uh, Vroom had hired a, a um, Priceline executive as a CEO to take the company public. And, you know, Lon was, was um, I'd sort of heard through someone that Lon was, was, you know, building his next thing. And so I basically just reached out to him cold. I just said, you know, I knew he was based in New York. I'd never met him. Uh, I reached out to him and said, let's catch up. And, and, you know, one thing led to another and, and, you know, suddenly we were talking about, you know, potentially investing in this new healthcare company. You know, the, the interesting thing with the interesting thing with K health is that, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a journey. I think um, certainly a journey for me learning the category and learning all the ins and outs of healthcare. But, and, and I think also it was a learning journey for him in the beginning. I mean, Alon, I've just seen him go from, you know, learning a lot about healthcare bottoms up to, you know, being an absolute expert in the space, you know, in that, in that first year of the business. Um, and now of course he's, he's kind of one of the leaders in, in digital health, but, you know, certainly in the beginning, it was something that he did not, uh, you know, he hadn't spent 20 years in, in healthcare, which I think you know, ultimately was a good thing. But the challenge with that one on the diligence side was, you know, I'm not a healthcare uh, expert, and so a lot of it was leaning on, um, again, like the the insights that he had about the industry that he had kind of come to have based on his research outside in, 
And, you know, me basically doing a hell of a lot of diligence calls with, with, you know, experts and you way more than me on, you know, on the industry. And I think the conclusion was that, you know, in, in K-Health's case, the really interesting part of it was uh, they had, you know, while a lot of folks had tried this idea of AI for primary care in the past, you know, the challenge was that you had these very disparate data sources, right? So you, you had companies that would um, try to pull from, you know, insurance claims data and you would have companies that tried to pull from doctor's notes and you would have, you know, these really siloed data sources. And, and, and the problem is when you start from that point, the, uh, the AI technology just doesn't, it doesn't work, right? It's kind of garbage in, garbage out. And so what happens is, is you build your whole machine learning um, on, you know, what tends to be pretty faulty data, which means that the ultimate recommendations that you're spitting out don't have any, you know, value. And so what was interesting was K-Health had this unique uh, access to data, which this proprietary data, which was really this vertically integrated data set that kind of tied together, you know, the whole patient journey from, you know, symptom all the way through to treatment and really close that loop. And, and, and that's what made it really interesting from an from a opportunity perspective is, although, although we and I didn't know a ton about, um, about you know, AI healthcare uh, or, or AI as, a pri- as, as applied to primary care, you know, we saw the power in, in backing Alon and we saw his insights and, and we saw the power of this, this initial data set. So, so that was really the K-Health story. And then, um, and then, you know, I guess the second example I can give is maybe more of a traditional example, which is Away. Um, so I, I met the founders, Steph and Jen, through an introduction from uh, one of the associates at our, at our firm. Um, and, you know, he, I think he went to high school with Steph's sister. And so it was kind of this personal connection that they had. And so, you know, he, he introduced me to Steph um, because he knew that I was sort of poking around in the, in, in, in the, um, in the space. And, and really that's how things started. And, and the interesting thing about Away was, you know, I remember my first meeting with Jen and Steph really clearly, which was like the first half an hour of the meeting was not, you know, some MBA presentation on, you know, the, the size of the market and, and, you know, the structure of the market. It was, it was like a half hour discussion about um, the ball bearings and the wheels on the suitcase. And, and it was really, I mean, it was a sort of in many ways a painstaking sort of walkthrough of how they came to this very special style of Japanese wheels and why these wheels were better than the 20 other wheels that they had, you know, looked at and sourced and, and tested. And, and, and you know, it, it was a very product-focused kind of discussion, right? And, you know, I sort of thought to myself, like after the meeting, look, I don't know whether these, you know, I certainly had no idea they were going to build a, you know, billion four company in, in four years. But I, I thought to myself, at least the product is going to work and it's going to be great. You know, I can trust these, these founders to put out a really, really awesome first product, which I think in hardware is, is, is saying something. Um, and so for me, it was really a combination of, you know, Jen and Steph obviously being just these amazing founders that had kind of rolled out of, of Warby Parker and kind of knew the model, but also this conviction that um, 
you know, that the product itself was going to be, was going to be great. Um, so that was a way. And then I guess uh, I can pick uh, the athletic maybe as, as the third. So the athletic, uh, which is a subscription sports media company is a company that we invested in early. So I, that one, I actually got in, in, invited to invest um, or invited to meet by, by one of their existing kind of pre-seed investors, um, a guy by the name of, of Andrew Galetka. Um, and he introduced me to the company and, and that one was a pretty easy one, which was, um, you know, while Away was a pre-launch, pre-product investment and K-Health was, a, you know, basically an idea and a PowerPoint, um, the Athletic had already launched. So they'd already launched in, I think it was Chicago in the beginning and Cleveland and then Toronto, their first three markets. And what was really interesting about their business was, um, you know, their retention numbers. So in the beginning, in those three markets, <clears throat> you know, their retention, their subscriber retention was, you know, upwards of 80%, close to 90% annual retention. And, you know, if you, if you spend any time in consumer internet, uh, or media, you know, those numbers are just are, are truly off the charts. And so, you know, for me, the diligence process was really, you know, thinking very, very highly of, of Alex and Adam as operators. Again, The Athletic was was their first kind of venture-backed company. They'd, they'd been at Strava before that and sort of ran the paid marketing um, and paid subscription business over at Strava. So there were some parallels there. Um, but also a little bit of a cheat code in that the numbers kind of spoke for themselves. And, you know, you, you had a basis of really, really engaged subscribers. And, and so the bet there was that you could build a big business, right? That you could not only retain subscribers, but that there would be enough subscribers that would be willing to pay. And, um, you know, and, and, and so we made that investment quite early and, and, and luckily I think, uh, the business is, is doing really well. Thanks for walking us through those three different examples and how you diligence them and the opportunities that, that you were seeing. I want to also talk to you a bit about um, the coronavirus. I know you recently tweeted that uh, uh, chaos is a ladder of, with respect to coronavirus and its impact on startups. What about its impact on you? How has coronavirus affected your day-to-day -day activities? And you know, are you finding yourself more focused on your portfolio companies rather than looking at new investments? Yeah. So the answer to that question is absolutely. So, you know, first and foremost, our, uh, you know, our time when we wake up these days is, is spent with our portfolio companies and, you know, that's, that's the way it should be. And, you know, a lot of the companies are going through, uh, some challenging times, right? So a lot of the companies are having to go through layoffs and furloughs and, and have had to restructure their, uh, their operating plans and push back you know, uh, investment opportunities. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's important, I think, that, that investors really help them and surround founders with as much help as, as we can, um, although we're not there operating the business. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of other companies, portfolio companies, you know, like, like a K-Health, which um, are going through, you know, massive, massive growth, right? It's kind of the, the, the next five years of K-Health just happened in the last month. And, and so that has its own challenges, right? About how do you scale up? You know, K-Health just announced they're hiring, you know, 500 doctors, for example. And, and you know, you, you kind of have to scale up on a dime and, 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 and really turn on a dime. And so, 
a lot of our help is is a lot of a lot of our time and attention is really focused on those founders too. So I would say absolutely we're spending more time both with the companies that are um, sort of going through some tough times, but also the companies that need help on how to really take advantage, although that's probably the wrong phrase, but really um, meet the moment. Um, and so, you know, I think what that means for, for new investments and what I'm seeing is just fewer deals. And so I think the bar is, you know, obviously really high right now. Um, you know, I think investors, at least I'm spending less of my time on evaluating new investments. And so you go from meeting, you know, two or three companies every couple of days to, you know, one, you know, that, that'll obviously affect investment pace and, and you want to make sure that the ones that you do are, are high quality, um, particularly high quality. So I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, the bar is really high right now and, and certainly open for business, but I think realistically the pace is just, it's just going to be slower. So are you finding that meeting founders virtually is making it harder to establish conviction? Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, I think I'm in the camp of there is a lot of value you can get by, you know, being in the same room as someone. And, and I think Zoom is a substitute. It's not a perfect substitute. And, you know, I think so much of what we do at the early stage is backing a founder that, you know, it, it has been actually challenging for me to, to kind of make the switch. Um, that said, I think I think in this new reality, um, it's it's kind of an opportunity for us VCs, right? Which is, can we can we get our heads around investing off of a Zoom call or a series of Zoom calls? And I think I think the answer is going to have to be yes, and I think it will be yes. Um, you know, I think we are going to find ways to uh, maybe not perfectly, but substitute in those kind of social moments with founders. Um, you know, although we can't be at a dinner table together, we can, you know, still have a virtual, you know, drink, for example. So I think there are going to be ways that we can sort of mimic what we did in, you know, IRL. Um, you know, I find myself doing way more referencing on on new deals if I haven't, you know, had the pleasure of meeting the founder in person. So I think I think we're going to operate in this kind of new normal a little bit where we're going to have to we're going to have to make investments that um, into founders that we haven't met. I think the the opportunity there for us though is that if we get good at that and if we can kind of build that muscle, that does open a lot of doors, right? So you start to think about okay, if I'm investing in a founder that's based in you know New Jersey, um, and I haven't met that founder, why can't I do the same thing for an investor for a founder that's based in you know Stockholm, right? Or or, or Sydney or, or, or anywhere, right? So I think it I think it is an opportunity for VCs if they can build that muscle. I've found it hard to build that muscle, but uh, it's something that I'm working on and I think we'll get there. Now you're having to meet founders virtually. Has this also changed how you do diligence, how you think of investing in uh, teams that are remote? Uh, I would say yes. I, you know, so coming into this COVID craziness, the the line that I used to draw was, you want to be you want to be working together in the same room when you are pre-product and pre-product market fit, and then as you scale, you can add remote components to your business or even be fully remote. Um, and and the, and the logic there was that you just there was just so much value that you had uh, having been in a founder's shoes before. There's just so much value you have, you know, with three to five to ten people in a room around a whiteboard, 
iterating really quickly, being in the same time zone, um, and you know that that was that that would probably be hard to 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 give up. Um, I've I've kind of changed that view. So I I think that there are a whole bunch of tools that um, that are available today that um, whether it be the digital whiteboard tools or or the the sort of more traditional collaboration tools that uh, that really bridge that gap. Um, you know, I do think it's important that, the, you know, I've been pitched companies where the founders actually haven't met each other in person before, which is kind of a, a, an interesting one to think about is, would, you know, would you invest in a company where the founders themselves have never met in person? And I, I don't think I would do that. But, you know, I think I've kind of relax, relaxed the assumption that everyone needs to be around, you know, a physical whiteboard to, to get the product market fit, because, you know, I do think you're going to have this new category of founder and founding teams where, you know, they, they do exist remotely and, you know, it kind of works for them and it's fine for them. And, and actually there could be some benefits, you know, um, I think there are benefits to being in the same time zone. I think there are also benefits to having, you know, handoffs across different time zones. Right. Um, I think there are benefits to labor cost arbitrage, for example. So, you know, I think, I think it's, I think it's more about, um, you know, less religion on it from my side and an investor side and more about, you know, the founders capable of pulling off the model. Thanks for that. And of course, that that then creates, if there's, if there's more people thinking along those lines, it creates a lot more opportunity for entrepreneurs that that, that are uh, distributed. So in, in terms of finding a capital. So that's great that you've, uh, well, it's it, well it's interesting that you've that you've kind of come around to that. What, what are some of the top mistakes uh, founders make when pitching to VCs? There's two that I'll point out. I think one is it's really important to be direct. So I, I think where founders maybe get things a little bit muddled is less is more for your business, right? And so if you have a great succinct story and a great set of metrics and a great plan for the future, it's really, really important to get to the point, get to the point quickly and to... Uh, if you can, show, don't tell, right, is what I like to say. And so I, I think a lot of founders take, you know, in, in particularly in a first meeting, take way too long to get to what they're actually building, why it's important, and, and in many ways get to the punchline. And, and you know, I think a lot of that, that, that also flows through to the decks that you get sent, right? So a lot of decks, you know, it takes five slides or 10 slides to kind of get to the actual product and business that they're building. So I think one is just, you know, investors are going to embrace the idea so much quicker if you just get to the point really, really quickly. And, you know, that's that's both in meetings as well as written communication decks. And, you know, investors have so many of these meetings and see so many decks that, uh, that that's just the most efficient way to, to get them across the line for the next meeting. Um, because that really is the goal. So I think the other mis the sort of related mistake that people make is I'm trying to get you to invest in the first meeting. And actually that's not the right approach. The right approach is I'm going to give you just enough and intrigue you just enough to get you excited about having another meeting. And, and so it's like really the goal of the first meeting is to get to the second meeting. And, and that does not. So what that means is it's not about the whole enchilada, right? It's not about going through the, 50 bullet points about why your, you know, tech stack is better than your competitors, right? It's, it's, it's about 
being very direct about here are the three reasons why this company is going to matter. And believe me enough to, to have a more detailed meeting with me next time around. So, so I think that's kind of one bucket. And then I, I guess the only other thing I would say is, um, you know, in many ways, Silicon Valley has been um, sort of popularized by the media and popularized by, um, you know, all the high profile names and founder names and VC names that we, that we hear about and see every day. Um, you know, and I think a big part of it is it's really important for founders to be authentic. It's really important for founders to be themselves, um, to, to, to really let themselves shine. And, and that, that does seem really cliche when you think about it. But, um, you know, I think a lot of founders, at least founders that I've met recently, seem to kind of come in with this um, persona that they, that they almost put on before the meeting. And you can kind of very, very easily see through that. I think investors need enough founders to, to be able to kind of call that. Um, and so I think wh whoever you are and, 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 and however your accent might sound or however you might talk and pitch and, you know, <laughs> however you sort of are, I think, I think it's really important that, you know, the best VCs are going to see you for who you are and want to back you for who you are and not back some sort of persona that you may think is attractive to VCs, right? And so I just wanted to put that out there that like, you know, the best founders, at least that I love backing, are the ones that are just just their 100% self and who let themselves shine. And, you know, ultimately that that's going to be the thing that, that investors are going to get behind. I also really like what you said about, you know, the first meeting is the goal of the first meeting is just to get to the second meeting and not just getting to the second meeting is that's really, really hard to do. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think about it as kind of this inverted pyramid, right? Where, um, you know, my, my top of funnel, uh, I'm actually very, in many ways, promiscuous, right? Like I'll take a lot of first meetings. I'll take a lot of first emails. Uh, these days I'm doing way more back and forth on email than, than just simply agreeing to a meeting, but I'm very wide on top of funnel for that first interaction. And then, and then it's almost the opposite for the second, which is it's sort of this, you know, the sort of funnel inverts, which is I'm very, very monogamous for my, you know, successive meetings, right? Because I think, I think time management, you know, for VCs is obviously critical, but yet at the same time, you want to be kind of open to, to new things. And I think, the way that I think about it is to is to cut things off very quickly if they're not going to fly and if I'm not going to write a check, and and be very very thoughtful about the you know handful of companies that I'm spending time with evaluating at any given time. But I think that sets up the the real challenge with this job, right? The ultimate challenge with this job, which is there are two types of errors, right? There's there's kind of the type one error, which is obvious, which is you know you meet a bunch of companies and you end up investing in you know, company A when really company B was the one to invest in. And, 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 and that's, that's obviously a big part of our job is to really pick the best companies that we meet with. Um, but there's also this type two error of, you know, either not meeting the company or not even seeing the company, right? And, and that's really the error. That, that's really the bucket that I struggle with the most and that I try to um, hedge the most is, you know, what if a company is getting started right now that is the next Snapchat um, that I just never get to because I don't get to in time because I don't hear about it because no one in my network alerts me in time. And, you know, the seed stage where I spend most of my time, that's, that's a big problem, right? Because 
you just don't have full visibility or anywhere close to full visibility on these companies are getting started. And, and especially as entrepreneurship kind of, in many ways, globalizes. I mean, what, what chance do you have of seeing every single company as kind of a single VC, right? Or a single partnership. And so I think really thinking about um, not only picking the best companies that you meet, but also over time doing, doing better and better and better on access and really you know, priming your network and priming your whole uh, setup to alert you to those one one in a million opportunities, I think is is really critical. Because I think the the big mistake for most VCs at the seed stage is um, either passing after the first meeting when you shouldn't have, or or not meeting. With yeah, exactly. It's your deal flow funnel that makes perfect sense. What's one company that is on your anti portfolio? Everyone's favorite question. So anti portfolio is you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect wish you did. I mean, this is a whole episode in and of itself, right? <laughs> but you know, one that hurts is like degrees of pain, right? So one that's extremely one that's extremely painful is a little old company called Afterpay, which is now not so little. It's now a probably an $8 billion public company. And um, I, I was actually, it was funny before this episode, uh, before we started recording, I just went through my emails and my, my first introduction to Nick Molnar, who, who, who was the founder, um, was back in 2012. And it was through a mutual friend of ours. And uh, the intro was to Nick Molnar, who is founder and CEO of B-Shop. Uh, which was at the time this online jewelry store, um, and you know I, you know, I like I connected with him. I was kind of nice on email, but it was just kind of like you know why is why am I speaking to this person? This is a complete waste of time, <laughs> type things. Um, but I did connect with him, and I, you know, and it was a, it was an interesting conversation. It was just the business wasn't um, particularly interesting. So, you know, we kind of connected in 2012 when he was doing B-Shop and then sort of he built that into, I think, quite an interesting business. And then, um, and then he pivoted the, the business or at least he, he started a new company, I think it was 2014. And that's when we next connected when he was, you know, when he just started Afterpay, I remember he was part of this incubator, this local incubator in, in Sydney and um, kind of spoke to him again. And he was kind of laying out this thesis that, you know, hey, I've been starting this e-commerce company, you know, in B-Shop and, 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 and now I'm going to go to the, uh, the vendor side and I've got this really interesting idea for this online layaway product and, you know, it's going to be really big and et cetera, et cetera. And this was, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was 2014. And by this time, you know, I'd already started at, um, at Comcast Ventures. And... Um, you know, again, just kind of thought it was, you know, thought of the hundred reasons why it wouldn't work, thought that the, you know, the PayPal's of the world would copy it in the instant, you know, didn't really fully appreciate the network effect of the business, and the defensibility of the business, that it was, that it was as much a demand side proposition as it was a merchant service. Um, and so sort of didn't, didn't do anything then. And then. And then the third one was really, um, I think it was 2017 when we actually met in person in San Francisco. And this, by this time, Afterpay was obvious. Um, they were scaling into the US. They had sort of um, made a bunch of uh, hires in the US. And he was, this was a time where he was moving to the US. And so 
Um, you know, but it was still, you know, 10x smaller than what it is today. And so that that still would have been a great investment. So it was, it was one of these things where, one of these, yeah, one of these things where um, not only did you get kind of multiple opportunities, but also, I mean, the guy is an Australian living in San Francisco, right? He's, um, you know, if there's, if there's, you know, operating in e-commerce, yeah, operating in e-commerce, which is something that, uh, a place that I spent a lot of time in. So that one, that's one where, and who knows whether he would have accepted uh, our investment or my investment, but it's tough to sit on the sidelines seeing something go from zero to, you know, six billion in a matter of a few years. Ah, so a few times potentially you had the opportunity to invest. Uh, what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Yeah, again, there are, there are a lot that I could answer with here, but I think uh, the personal one, I'm going to go with a book called Personal History by Kay Graham, uh, the former uh, owner of the, the Washington Post, the Graham family. Um, and what was interesting about that book was, and it's a, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book, it's a, it's a very uh, well-known book. The, the interesting thing about that book is that um, it really talks about the Watergate uh, the Watergate scandal and the Watergate moments. And um, what was what was really, uh, what stood out to me in this book, and it's, it's a biography, um, you know, of Kay Graham and her life. And she's lived, obviously lived quite a storied life, um, you know, being, a, being part of the Graham family and all. But, but it was really the Watergate decision that, um, that, that was really compelling to me. And what was compelling was that, you had so much personal and professional risk around, you know, breaking the story. And, you know, when she was, when she was owner of the post and making the calls around what, you know, whether to print and, and when to go to print, it was, it was really about um, this idea that she had kind of this North star around, you know, essentially public service and really looking at her life and her business through this lens of, you know, what, what's best for the public. And, and, and why am I on this earth and, and why do I exist? And, and, you know, if I do get sued into oblivion, you know, would I be proud of my uh, decision? And Personal History was really a, a book that really uh, made me think about my own moral compass and made me think about, you know, what is it that I'm on this earth for? And, you know, if I, if I came to a crucible moment like, like she did with Watergate, you know, what would I do? Um, and so I think that was, that was a really compelling book for me. And then, you know, on the more professional side, um, I read a book called Growth Fetish by a guy named Clive Hamilton, who's a um, professor of public ethics uh, and an economist. I, I read that book, you know, once every few years. I, I, I really like it. And, and basically the book uh, outlines how um, the sort of relentless pursuit of growth um, how, how that has really become detrimental to democracy, detrimental to the environment, has led to all sorts of um, social unrest. And, you know, this was a book that was written, um, you know, I think about 20 years ago, uh, you know, before, before things were, were obvious here. And, you know, it just, it, it just sort of makes me, as a board member actually specifically, think about, the context in which these companies are operating. So the, the, the reminder that that book has for us is that, 
you know, the pursuit of growth at all costs um, is not great for the companies themselves because that can lead to, you know, a WeWork situation or a situation where um, these companies are not built on healthy foundations. But it also means that, um, you know, the pursuit of, all, of growth is, can be detrimental to society and can be detrimental to, um, to a whole set of other stakeholders and cause all these other kind of negative externalities that, that maybe we don't obviously see but that are obviously true. And so um, I, I, I'm a huge believer in the fact that startups uh, all the way through to big corporations exist in the context of, of society and community and, and that those businesses should uh, operate in that context and serve in many ways, serve the communities that they, that they operate in and not just, um, not just take a very narrow kind of shareholder based approach. So I'm a big fan of growth fetish. I think it helps us as business people um, get some sort of wider perspective on, on the impact of, of, of what we do every day. And, it's a book that I keep coming back to. Both are actually seem very relatable in terms of measuring uh, your impact. What is your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? Yeah, so the most recent one that I can talk about is a company called Blue Land, which I think we spoke about uh, earlier in, in this episode. Yeah, so, so that company is a zero plastic, zero water CPG company, starting with household cleaning products. And what was really interesting about that company for me was this idea that you could make uh, e-commerce work for, uh, for, the, for these CPG categories. And so, you know, when you, think about, um, when you think about traditional CPG and think about applying e-commerce to those models, um, it, it's, it's quite hard, right? Because um, most of the costs of these products are in freighting the, you know, the product around the country and basically shipping water to, to the consumer. I mean, that's, that's kind of what it comes down to. And so it's very difficult to economically do that um, with traditional form factors. You know, the other, the other interesting thing is like, if you look at a bottle of, you know, let's take Windex, you know, it's a big blue bottle of liquid and you ask yourself, okay, why is, it, why is that so? And that's so because, you know, traditional distribution, Walmart, Costco, et cetera, uh, requires you as a brand to stand out on shelf, right? And so the whole raison d'etre of these these brands is to compete in the context of a Walmart or a Costco or some other big retailer. And you know the way that they do that is is you become um, you know you, you really vie for placement and you really vie for high level and end caps. Um, and so that that's kind of the game. And sort of back to this discussion about recasting the rules so i think it would have been really hard and i think it is really hard to just go in and start you know a version of windex today right because windex has all sorts of advantages on distribution they obviously know the category better than anyone and uh they have you know significant market share right but what sarah came in and did was say okay how do i um, how do I make this work for e-commerce? And the way to make it work for e-commerce is you've got to completely re-engineer the form factor of these products. So you have to, you know, her insight was that because everything is being, you know, because it's basically plastic and water that is being kind of carted around the country. Um, if you took the plastic out and if you took the water out, 
you could actually make the shipping economics work for e-commerce. You could lower the cost of these products dramatically. Consumers would benefit from lower costs and you could save the environment a whole lot of uh, waste by, um, you know, by, by improving the, the sort of footprint of these products. And so um, I thought it was a great win-win where you could really tell this very unique story around, you know, lower cost for the consumer, um, you know, parity on e efficacy, if not better efficacy than leading brands, as well as like a very, very compelling sustainability story. Um, and so that triumvirate really got, got me excited to invest. And, and you know, Sarah, is, as you may, may not know, is, is just an awesome founder. She's uh, started a couple of companies in, in her past. I actually got to know her back in, in our HBS days years ago. And so had always respected her as, a, as an individual and as a founder. And excited to now uh, get the chance to back her over multiple rounds. Love it. I mean, yeah, I saw, I, I also had a Susan line from a BBG on the show last fall. And she was also just talking up a story about, uh, about blue land. Uh, really, really loved also seeing them on shark tank. I thought, I thought, I thought Sarah did a fantastic job there. What's one piece of advice that you have for B2C founders? I, you know, I, I would say everything old is new again. And what I mean by that is webband didn't work. Instacart looks like it'll work really, really well. Excite kind of worked and then didn't work. Google is changing everyone's lives to this day. Samsung failed at launching their touchscreen phone a year before the iPhone one was released. And so I think in consumer, small changes can lead to gigantic outcomes and very different outcomes from those that have come before you. And just because Blue Jeans had a so-so product in web conferencing and that there were 10 other web conferencing players doesn't mean that Zoom can't be a $30 billion company uh, 10 years later. So I would say to consumer founders, don't, don't worry about what's come before you. If you believe you have a unique insight and that the time is right for your idea, pursue it with all the vigor you have and pull the future forward for us. Wow, that's that's a great piece of advice. And uh, this is phenomenal. I mean, this is uh, this is really has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. And there you have it. It was an absolute pleasure having Daniel on and sharing his amazing insights from his experiences, both as a founder and investor. You can follow Daniel on Twitter and Medium at Daniel Galati. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.